0: Good afternoon. Welcome to the Cato Institute for our policy forum today on the upcoming reargument of the case before the Supreme Court, Citizens United versus Federal Election Commission. Um, my name is John Samples. I'm director of the Center for Representative Government here at Cato. Uh, this is an area of interest of mine. I'm also the author of the book, The Fallacy of Campaign Finance Reform, which was published a couple of years ago. Um, What we're going to do today is I'll have a brief introduction about the case and what's at stake. Uh, Then we will turn to our two experts uh, for uh, some presentations and also uh, some rebuttals of their views of this case and what is to come in the next day or so. Uh, thereafter, about an hour from now or so, uh, I would hope that we can go to question and answers in which you, the audience, will have a chance to direct questions to the, uh, any of us, but, uh, particularly our two guests today. And then sometime around 1.30 or so, we will decamp upstairs for, uh, the famous Cato free lunch, which follows these things. And we'll have a great, uh, an opportunity also to talk more about these issues. Um... I thought I would start today in talking about this case in our forum here uh, and giving you some background. Now, this is a highly complex case if you read any of the briefs and if you read any of the arguments, which are themselves fairly complex, but I want to give you a basic idea of what has happened and why we are here today. Um, In Section 203 of the McCain-Feingold Campaign Finance Law in 2002, Congress made a major effort to restrict what so-called electioneering communications. Now, what is that, a term of art? Well, Section 203 does not restrict corporate or union expenditures used to finance campaign communications when those are paid for out of a PAC. That's been provided for for some decades now. A political action committee is the way corporations and unions can finance such communications. But if a corporation or union wishes to spend its own treasury funds, Section 203 in McCain-Feingold bars the use of those funds to finance communications that are clearly related to a federal candidate on radio, television, cable, TV, or satellite, and are within 60 days of a primary uh, convention or 60 days before a general election. In other words, McCain-Feingold put conditions on the use of general treasury funds to fund communications in specific ways. And if if you didn't, under those conditions, it was a prohibited expenditure. It was a message, a communication that could not be heard by the public or spoken or transmitted by the source. Citizens United is an organization that is engaged in political communications, It made a movie called Hillary, the movie. It concerned what was at the time a presidential candidate and now the Secretary of State, uh, Hillary Clinton. Among other things, Citizens United uh, prepared three ads to promote the movie and and planned to broadcast one of the ads. The ads, however, seemed to fall under what I was just discussing, this whole business of electioneering communications and McCain-Feingold. In other words, the ads for the movie, and perhaps also the movie itself, ultimately uh, could run afoul of the law. So that led Citizens United to the courts to vindicate its rights, what it saw as its rights of free speech under the First Amendment. And the case itself ultimately was heard at the Supreme Court, and a decision was expected last June. But, in fact, there was no decision, not in June, anyway. Instead, in an unusual move, the court ordered a re-argument of the case. And it said it wanted new briefs on whether the court for the, quote, proper disposition of this case, that is the Citizens United case, should overrule either or both Austin versus uh, Michigan Chamber of Commerce and part of an earlier re- uh, ruling, McConnell versus Federal Election Commission, which had dealt with the McCain Fine Gold Law. So that raises a couple of more questions, and we'll be through the background and we can go to our experts. I think it's generally understood that by far the most important case or precedent at stake here is Austin versus Michigan Chamber of Commerce, a case that dates from 1990. In that case, a majority of the Supreme Court upheld a Michigan law that barred corporations from using their internal funds, their treasury funds, to support or oppose any state candidate, even though the spending was done independently of that candidate's campaign operation. Now, in that case, so that's a a good precedent at this point, um, there are three justices from that court that are still on the bench now. Justice Stevens, who concurred in the result, but also Justice Scalia, Justices Scalia and Anthony, uh, Kennedy, Anthony uh, Kennedy. Kennedy and Scalia dissented, and we should also say that in other instances, Justice Thomas has made it clear that he too, had he been on the court, would have dissented. So it's fairly clear that on the current court, there are three members who would vote uh, against uh, Austin, were it presented before them today, and perhaps may also vote to overturn it. Justice Kennedy, uh, Justice Scalia, in his uh, dissenting opinion in Austin, wrote, and this gives you some sense of, uh, of that case, Scalia wrote, quote, Attention all citizens. To ensure the fairness of elections by preventing disproportionate expression of the views of any single powerful group, your government has decided that the following associations of persons shall be prohibited from speaking or writing in support of any candidate, unquote. For Scalia, that was the upshot of the decision in Austin. In the case of uh, McConnell versus FEC, which involved the constitutionality of McCain-Feingold, uh, the electioneering provisions were upheld, uh, and now except accepted uh, as applied cases. This part of the decision in McConnell involved Austin and relied heavily on it. So now we've reached the end of the beginning, which is, that we have a sense of what's at stake here. Tomorrow, the Supreme Court will hear a case about two of its precedents. It will be about how people can spend money in political campaigns. It will involve First Amendment and other issues. So we thought it w- I thought it would be great in a, a major case like this, potentially major implications, to invite two leading experts with different views about the case to discuss it and some of the questions involved. And to deal with, initially at least, as a starting point, the court's initial question about should we overrule Austin, do we need to overrule Austin and McConnell, and then go from there in what is, in fact, a case that goes to the very uh, depths of a lot about American democracy, uh, the American Constitution, the First Amendment, and so on. We're going to begin today with Bradley A. Smith. Uh, who holds the Josiah H. Blackmore II and Shirley M. Nault Designated Professor of Law position at Capitol University Law School. He has been there uh, off and on uh, within, since uh, the early 1990s as a professor of law. In 2000, when he left briefly, he was nominated by President Clinton to fill a Republican-designated seat on the Federal Election Commission, where he served for five years, including serving as chairman of the commission uh, in 2004, I believe some of his um, uh, colleagues from that commission are here today, and we welcome you specifically to Cato. In 2005, Pro- uh, Professor Smith uh, founded the Arlington-based uh, Center for Competitive Politics and continues to serve as chairman of the center. Uh, I recommend their website to you. He's also on the board of the Buckeye Institute for Public policy uh, solutions his writings have appeared in leading law journals including Yale Georgetown Harvard and he also has written popular uh, in the popular press his book on free speech the folly of campaign finance reform appeared as received wide reading criticism support and is an important perhaps the most important and I would argue as a writer of another book on it the most important book uh, skeptical of campaign finance regulation in the field. Professor Smith.
1: Well, thank you, John, very much, especially for those kind words on, on the book. Uh, I would uh, suggest that you actually read John's book, which I think is, is better and has a lot more detail. Um in any event, it's a pleasure to be here, and always a pleasure to be here with uh, Jamin. Uh, uh, Jamie's a, a great guy, I know and respect, and actually even supported my nomination to the Federal Election Commission. I think his basic theory was that uh, I wouldn't be any worse than any other Republican on the issues, and at least I had integrity or something like that, and I said, okay, that was, that was pretty good, I, so, so I appreciated that. Um, well, this is a... Um, Obviously, an interesting case. And, you know, it came – I think the court surprised people by sending it for re Obviously, that's a difference. It's not normally done in a special session. And that came about really because I think of the way oral argument went uh, during the case – in March of uh, this year. Now, it's obvious that uh, Justice Alito in particular and some of the other justices may be looking for reasons to be more aggressive in striking down campaign finance laws. Alito in particular had written a couple of very brief concurrences to a couple of the court's opinions saying, bring us more cases, essentially. Uh, You know, if this were more squarely presented to us, we might go further in striking down some of these laws. And uh, to some extent, this may be the case. They've decided to Make a move. Why? Well, at oral argument, the deputy solicitor for the uh, the deputy solicitor general for the United States made the argument, and, and you really should should look this argument up and read it. It's about twelve pages of the transcript. At this point, he argued uh, quite vigorously that, in fact, the federal government or state legislators had the power to ban books. Uh, they could ban books and movies, he said they could ban the internet, they could ban newsletters, uh, if any of these things were published by a corporation. And of course, most books are published by corporations. Uh, now, this drew uh, some rebukes afterwards from people who have generally been supportive of campaign finance regulation. They were kind of stunned. They said, what was he thinking? You know, why would he, he make these outrageous arguments? He didn't need to go that far. But, But Uh, Solicitor Stewart had not gone walkabout here. This was what the government briefed. This was exactly what was in their brief. And, in fact, the reality is this is what has been in the government's briefs for over 20 years. Uh, And this is what Austin v. Michigan Chamber of Commerce says. Uh, That's the reality of the situation, that if a corporation pays for something uh, political, the government can ban it. Now, within that context, the government has been willing to recognize certain exceptions. Uh, Stewart seemed to think that there was probably a constitutionally required exception for the media, and he suggested that maybe there were others. He did recognize that the Supreme Court and Wisconsin Right to Life v. Federal Election Commission had trimmed back somewhat the nature of ads that would qualify as political ads that could be regulated. But this has been the government's position. It can regulate books and movies if it chooses to do so and can regulate presumably most any kind of speech paid for by a corporation. And Austin says it can do this because of the unique characteristics of a corporation. Now, as to the specific question asked then... Uh, by the way, you could almost hear an audio, audible gasp in the room. Even longtime supporters of regulations such as Justice Souter seemed a little bit taken aback to have the government's position put forth so boldly and honestly. Uh, it's just usually not presented that honestly. People don't usually like to say, here's what we're about. We're trying to limit this, this speech. Um, so... The, uh, we're set for oral argument. Now, the question the court asks is is it necessary to overrule McConnell v. Michigan or McConnell v. FEC or Austin v. Michigan Chamber of Commerce? And I think the general answer has actually been, even from, from those uh, briefing as Amici on the side of Citizens United and Citizens United itself, well, it's not absolutely necessary, but you really need to do it. You ought to do it anyway. That is, it is almost certainly possible for the court, and the court may yet come up with a narrow uh, basis for ruling in this case. I think it's very unlikely that they will argue, that they will uphold the government's position in its entirety that, that the government had the right to ban advertisements for Hillary the movie to prohibit its distribution through video on demand and so on. But the government could come up with a position, something like, well, movies are covered by the press exemption of the statute. They're, they're not, but sometimes they'll twist the language of a statute to say they are, just to avoid the constitutional question. Uh, they might try something else to say, well, this is different because uh, listeners have to uh, seek out the information, at least in terms of getting the movie um, Although that strikes me as beginning to sound a lot like time, place, and manner restrictions, which the court has long recognized are, are not really applicable here, and I'm not sure there's a distinction that that would matter. But it could; it's a plausible one. Um, but in any case, uh, uh, doing so would leave the law really uh, something of a of a of a shambles, and it would, I think, simply put off the day of reckoning. The fact is, the law is already. Convoluted, complex, and full of loopholes and exceptions, precisely because the law regulates political speech, and when it gets too close to the core, even people who really kind of want to do that tend to to pull back uh, and so as a, a brief that was signed by myself and seven other former commissioners, uh, including a couple who are here today, uh, noted it was drafted by the legendary Jim Bop, who I see back here in the audience. Um, Note it, already the law regulates over 70 different types of speakers, whether you're speaking as a corporation or a partnership or a party official or a candidate or a union and so on. It regulates over 30 different forms of speech with their own particular rules. I remember when McCain-Feingold was up for grabs, and and in fact, in years later, a common Uh, cry of Senator McCain and and others uh, in that camp has been, the same rules should apply to everyone. And I've always thought, this, where's that come from? I mean, we're not, we're not even close to having the same rules apply for everyone. There are, there is no one set of rules for which just a few people are standing outside. There's a complex maze of rules. Again, as we pointed out in our brief for the former commissioners, it, it takes up over 200 pages of statutory language, well over 500 pages of regulations, over 1,700 pages of explanation and justification. You've got a couple thousand advisory opinions by the commission interpreting all this, and so on and so on. All a far cry from the eloquent language of the First Amendment, eloquent in its simplicity, Congress shall make no law, which even if we don't take an absolutist position towards it, seems to be somewhat violated by this convoluted nature that our law has reached. So I I think that it would have been very tough for the court to say, yeah, let's carve out some more exceptions. And I'm not sure how well those exceptions will hold up because of the changing nature of technology. For example, suppose the court says, well, okay, movies are going to be covered under the press exemption. Might be a narrow way the court can do it. Well, It doesn't take much to do movies anymore. I mean, people make some pretty good movies. You go to YouTube, you see some pretty good stuff there that folks can make, and you can distribute these things quite easily uh, through video on demand, through Internet uh, distribution and so on. Similarly, the Internet itself blurs the line between the idea of a traditional press and everybody else. The fact that changes in the industry in the press, where companies like General Electric and and Disney own television networks, you know, you no longer have sort of the family owned newspaper dynasty. Uh, rather, you have corporations that have the right to speak because they own newspapers or television facilities, and corporations that don't have the right to speak because they don't own newspapers or television facilities. Um, And you have individuals who can increasingly creep in on those roles. Um, so I think that ultimately you can see in a whole variety of ways that it's getting very, very hard to make these long exceptions stand. And it was only because of these exceptions. It was only because there was a, an exception for the press, the institutional press, that somehow I think the law was able to stand. I think without that exception, nobody would have dreamed the law was constitutional at any point in time, right? But they, you know, an exception for the press might have made some sense in the 1970s when we could kind of identify – press. I'm not sure it was a good constitutional doctrine, but at least we knew who they were. Nowadays, that line is so blurred that I just don't think it's a workable type of exception in any case. So it's a difficult situation in which supporters of the law are placed. Uh, They've argued repeatedly that the law has been in effect for many years, but that's somewhat overstated because for many, many years, while the law prohibited corporate expenditures in races, it was either not enforced... Or it was very easily, to use the, the phrase these days, circumvented. Because the Supreme Court itself recognized that you couldn't limit all this speech. They said, unless it's got this express advocacy component, vote for, vote against, support, defeat, corporations can still largely fund it. They can fund these issue ads. And the court recognized that those issue ads were often as effective as any other ad. Uh, that's just the way it was to protect speech. So only with McCain-Feingold, well, not only, but increasingly, and with McCain-Feingold, the latest step, does it become more and more important for corporations to find another way to speak? Because McCain-Feingold now begins to say, well, you can't even do issue ads if they're close to an election. In other words, if we keep closing off avenues of speech, we push further and further toward these extreme uh, ends that are going to have to be dealt with at some point. Um, And the bottom line is, when you really listen, I'll let Jamie make the arguments, but when you really listen to all the arguments made for why corporate speech should be banned, they really come down to because some of us don't like what we think the corporations are going to say. And we're really upset about that. And that's really in the end kind of the bottom line that we have. And so it's a difficult position to uh, uphold. So The government has taken a very interesting position in this case. Rather than defending Austin as Austin was written, it has essentially run away from Austin. Austin used this rationale that speech should match the popular support That it had. In other words, if a speaker had a lot of popular support, then he was entitled to a lot of speech. If he didn't have a lot of popular support, then he wasn't entitled to much speech. That was sort of the theory of Austin that speech should reflect, spending on a campaign should reflect popular support for the views expressed which I think, again, has things exactly backwards. Spending should not reflect pre-existing popular support. That's one reason why people spend. That's one reason why they campaign. But this was one of the arguments that was made. And the idea was that this, if people were spending more than they had in pre-existing popular support, somehow that was corroding the political system. People might be persuaded by hearing those arguments. And then the political dynamic would change from some pure political dynamic that existed before they heard those arguments. I don't do justice to the position. I'm sure I don't, because for the life of me, I, I really don't understand it. But that's kind of the position. The government here, on reargument ran away from that argument of corrosion. They don't talk about corrosion at all. Instead, their argument now is that independent expenditures that is, expenditures made independently of a candidate, in fact pose the same type of threat of quid pro quo corruption as a campaign contribution, which the court has long said you could regulate more heavily because there's more of a possibility of quid pro quo. Somebody comes up, says, I'll give you $10,000 for your campaign, but I want you to vote in some way or something like that. At least that's the theory. With independent spending, the idea was you didn't have that kind of opportunity for the quid pro quo. The government's position now is, no, no, the same The same thing is there, the same type of possibilities of corruption. So the government is, in essence, doubling down here, whereas Austin relied on the specific idea that corporations amassed great wealth using the corporate form, which was some special favor from the government, that corporations were in some way different than everything else, so they could be regulated differently. Now the government comes in and is saying, in this case, no, no. You know, it's just that independent expenditures can all be regulated. They're corrupting. Now, the government does argue they're most corrupting when made by contributions. But their argument really does not suggest, other than as an evidentiary matter, that there's any reason why the government could not ban a book that's not published by a corporation. So if you really look at it, the government goes in in March and they say, look, if it's published by a corporation, we can ban a book. And the justices go, whoa, whoa. That seems pretty strong. You sure that's your position? Yes, that's our position, says Stewart in 14 pages, over and over. And the, the court says, maybe we'd better reargue this and, and think about those precedents you're relying on. Maybe we should overturn those. Okay. Now the government has come back and said, you know, our position wasn't exactly that we could ban books because they were published by corporations. Our position is we can ban books if they're published by anybody. It doesn't matter who publishes them. If they're corrupting and we think independent expenditures are corrupting. So, so the government has, in essence, doubled down in this case, which puts something at stake that a lot of people don't think. If the government wins this case, it's going to eat a huge chunk out of the free speech rights that we retain. Now, I think sensing that these arguments are not going to be, meet a receptive audience at the Supreme Court, the uh, supporters of the law have have put forward two arguments that I think are largely make-weight arguments. I'm not saying they're totally without merit, but I don't think they really believe them. I think they just figure they're handy arguments, and when you're losing the battle, you reach for any you know, cudgel you can find to try to beat the other side up the head with. Uh, The first of those, which is fairly easily dismissed, is that this is a violation of shareholder rights, that the government needs to ban corporate spending on politics in order to protect the rights of shareholders. Now, of course, that argument seems like a non-starter when we think, well, shareholders, you know, you hold your shares voluntarily. You don't like what the corporation's doing. You sell them. But they make the argument, look, for a lot of people, that's very, very difficult to do. If you've got money invested through a 401K or something like that, it can be very difficult to sort these things out and make those transactions. And that's all fair enough. I don't suggest that this is a foolish argument, but it's really not a campaign finance argument. It's a corporate government governance argument. And in fact, we have laws of corporate governance. And these statutes banning corporate political participation never appear in the corporate statutes. They appear in the campaign finance statutes to regulate political speech. Um, corporations do all kinds of political speech that their minority shareholders disagree with. Uh, corporations may fund controversial speakers at universities such as uh, Ward Connerly or Ward Churchill. They may fund uh, nonprofit organizations such as the Cato Institute. Or, or Planned Parenthood, or the Boy Scouts. Some people were very upset to know that their shareholder money was being used to fund the Boy Scouts because of their position on gay supervisors within the organization corporations fund art museums that may show controversial political works of art, okay? So corporations already use shareholder money in all kinds of different ways to do that, and that's never bothered folks. In fact, I got a kick out of it. One of the groups that's been thumping the table most heartily on this issue is the Brennan Center for Justice in New York. Now, who funds the Brennan Center? Well, I don't know exactly, but I know over the years, their funders have included Coca-Cola, Enron, Bear Stearns, right? Like a rogues gallery of American corporations funds the Brennan Center, right? And never once has anybody from the Brennan Center ever written a column to complain that this violated the rights of shareholders to be using the shareholder money to advance the, the political agenda of the Brennan Center, which is a pretty controversial agenda in many, many ways. They've done a lot of controversial things besides campaign finance relating to the rights of prisoners at Guantanamo and so on. Okay? They never cared about that. They're out today probably soliciting corporate contributions. Okay? It's, just, it's either hypocrisy or it's a make-wake argument. Um, the other thing is, of course, that it's far too broad an argument, because many corporations uh, don't have those shareholder dissidents, closely held corporations, for example. And even if every member of the corporation wants to spend the money that way, these laws would prohibit them from doing so. The other argument that's a bit more serious is the argument from precedent. And the argument simply goes, you can't overturn precedent, you can't overturn precedent, you can't overturn precedent. Why, this would be a terrible thing to overturn precedent. Um, I won't say much about that except to say that it is not judicial activism every time the court overturns a precedent or overturns a statute. Uh, These are controversial and difficult issues when a court should uh, give leeway to Congress and when a court should overturn a precedent. But basically, if something doesn't belong in the Constitution... It should be overruled. And Austin has long been the odd case out in the court's campaign finance jurisprudence and a case that seems at odds with the Constitution itself. You can be a judicial activist if you go around striking down statutes that's unconstitutional because you don't like them. But you can also be a judicial activist if you go around upholding statutes as constitutional because you do like them, even though they probably violate the Constitution. And I would argue that that is, in fact, what the Supreme Court has frequently done in the area of campaign finance. So with my time up, I will yield to Jamie. And I will see you again in about 20 minutes for a few more comments.
0: I can't resist a couple of comments. Uh... Uh, I, the Coca-Cola Corporation? Are, are you a Pepsi man or something? Yeah, yeah. Uh, the other thing is, indeed, there are really good uh, videos on YouTube, and you can find one about Citizens United with me in it, but there's also good people, actors or people that, are, that, that do well on the video. So look that up on your uh, local search engine. Our second uh, speaker today will be Jamin Raskin, who's professor at law and director of the Law and Government Program um, at uh, Washington College of Law at American University. Uh, he's also the founder of the acclaimed Marshall Brennan Constitutional Literacy product, uh, Project. He teaches constitutional law, the First Amendment, and legislation. He has written dozens of law review articles, widely discussed ones, and several influential books, including Overruling Democracy The Supreme Court versus the American People in 2003, which examines patterns of conservative judicial activism and, infer- and interference with democratic politics. An active constitutional lawyer, uh, Jamie has represented clients as diverse as Reverend Jesse Jackson, Ross Perot, and Greenpeace, and was chairman of the Maryland State Higher Education Labor Relations Board. In September 2006, he won a landslide upset victory in the Democratic primary for state senate from District 20 in Maryland, which is Silver Spring and Tacoma Park, uh, toppling a 32-year incumbent, and went on to win 99% of the vote in the November general election. Uh, the Washington Post has called Senator Raskin Maryland's, quote, authority on constitutional issues, unquote. Professor Raskin.
2: Hmm. Uh, well, thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here as always. I'm especially delighted to be uh, here with Brad Smith, one of President Clinton's uh, finest Republican nominees uh, to office. <laughs> And I I was happy to support his application on the theory that he could do much less damage at the Federal Election Commission than in legal academia. Um, But uh, he he remains prolific on all fronts. Um, Let's see. Perhaps we can agree at the outset that the current posture of the case reflects uh, a spectacular outburst of uh, judicial activism, however you want to define it. The court has taken... Um, several extremely narrow and easily resolvable issues that were fully briefed and analyzed, whether McCain-Feingold can apply to on-demand satellite transmission of a movie, which it shouldn't, and whether that movie constitutes express advocacy, uh, which it doesn't, and blown it up into a test of the constitutionality of any and all restrictions on the use of business corporation treasury funds for express political advocacy, a question that was not raised anywhere in the actual case, a question about laws that are more than a century old, which have been repeatedly upheld by the Supreme Court, and about which there is no factual evidence at all in the record as to their real-world meaning. This out-of-the-blue threat to topple dozens of state and federal laws and to bulldoze a wall of Supreme Court precedent would radically expand the political power of America's business corporations in our elections, transforming the very nature of our democracy. Uh, and if the justices follow through on this threat, it will make Bush versus Gore look like an exercise in judicial modesty and humility. Um, but the court clearly has the power to examine constitutional questions. So uh, let me try to grab the bull by the horns, as, uh, as Brad did. Do corporations have a constitutional right to spend money freely in our politics? Uh, Today, the answer is no. About half of the states um, allow corporate contributions directly to people running for governor and state legislature and mayor and so on. on. About half of them do not. Uh, Some of them allow free corporate expenditures in politics and some of them do not. Now, if Citizens United uh, and Brad have their way um, all of the state laws that restrict corporate, um, expenditures and contributions will be struck down. In other words, uh, all of these laws will be wiped away because we will declare that corporations have, um, untrammeled First Amendment rights to spend money in politics. Now does this make sense? The starting point for the discussion for me lies in the Declaration of Independence, which asserted a belief in equality, liberty, and the consent of the governed, and the first three words of our Constitution, which defined the sovereign agents of our common life as we the people. And in fact, it was our last great Republican president, uh, Abraham Lincoln, um, who, uh, who not only advanced the cause of freedom against the worst form of oppression uh, known in our history, but defined the future of freedom on this land as inextricably bound up with government of the people, by the people, for the people. Now, the relationship of the private for-profit business corporation, to the progress of government by the people is complicated, and we don't have time to go deeply into it now. But fortunately, we don't need to do so because from a constitutional and jurisprudential perspective, the status of the corporation is perfectly clear. A corporation is not, nor has it ever been, a constitutional person with voting rights. It is not, nor has it ever been, a democratic citizen, nor has it ever been a constituent member of we the people. The founders did not mention the word corporation in the declaration or the Constitution. And indeed, there were only a handful of corporations in existence uh, at the time the Constitution was written. The corporation is and always has been a subordinate artificial entity, as the Supreme Court has called it, chartered by the state or federal government, to serve specific or general public purposes. Legally speaking, it has no independent constitutional standing outside of the rights of the people actually involved with it. The idea now being seriously promoted on the court and on the Wall Street Journal's editorial pages that CEOs have First Amendment rights to take money out of corporate treasuries to give campaign contributions to candidates or to spend on behalf of their campaigns is preposterous. A corporation is not a political membership organization of citizens, but an artificial entity chartered for purposes of wealth accumulation and distribution. This view is absolutely embedded in our jurisprudence and goes back to Chief Justice John Marshall's authoritative statement in the Dartmouth College case that, quote, A corporation is an artificial being, invisible, intangible, and existing only in contemplation of law. Being the mere creature of law, it possesses only those properties which the charter of creation confers upon it, either expressly or as incidental to its very existence." Justice Brewer wrote that under our constitution, quote, a corporation is not endowed with the inalienable rights of a natural person. It is an artificial person created and existing only for the convenient transaction of business. In our time, Justice White eloquently elaborated the same view. Corporations, he said, are artificial entities created by law for the purpose of furthering economic goals. In order to facilitate the achievement of such ends, special rules relating to such matters as limited liability, perpetual life, and the accumulation, distribution, and taxation of assets are normally applied. States have provided corporations with with such attributes In order to increase their economic viability. But he emphasized that a corporation has no political rights, no constitutional claim to convert its economic power into political power. As he so memorably put it, the state need not permit its own creation to consume it. Chief Justice Rehnquist elaborated the same position, saying he could not see why liberties of political expression are necessary to effectuate the purposes for which states permit commercial corporations to exist, Indeed, the states might reasonably fear that the corporation would use its economic power to obtain further benefits beyond those already bestowed upon it. For more than a century, with the growth of industrial capitalism, the sovereign actors of American democracy, that is, we the people, have understood that private business corporations, which are magnificent and effective agents of capital accumulation and wealth maximization in the economic sphere – pose extreme dangers in the political sphere. Our people and our best leaders have always wanted business to prosper and to thrive and to flourish in economics, but never to govern or dominate in politics. For more than a century now, we have conducted federal elections without the intervention of corporations drawing on their treasury funds. So the Citizens United case suddenly threatens a dramatic reversal of democratic practice in our country. The key period of growth for business corporations was the Civil War, and the political implications of that growth troubled President Lincoln, who said in 1864 that, quote, "...as a result of the war, corporations have become enthroned, and an era of corruption in high places will follow. The money power of the country will endeavor to prolong its rule by preying upon the prejudices of the people until all wealth is concentrated in a few hands and the republic is destroyed." Even before that, Jefferson had foreseen the same problem, writing in 1816, I hope we shall crush in its birth the the aristocracy of our moneyed corporations which dare already to challenge our government to a trial of strength and bid defiance to the laws of our country. Now, the seminal period for campaign finance regulation was around the turn of the 20th century as corporate money washed over federal and state politics. It was so rampant that in 1888, President Rutherford Hayes wrote that the U.S. had become a government of corporations, by corporations, and for corporations. In 1896, the last election of the 19th century, um, William McKinley's uh, gifted Ohioan campaign manager, Mark Hanna, perfected the model for translating the private financial power of corporations into political power. He assessed all banks in the country one-fourth of one percent of their capital and then assigned flat amounts that were due uh, by large corporations based on their size for the purposes of funding the Republican presidential campaign. So we got a quarter of a million dollars from Standard Oil and about the same amount from J.P. Morgan. Two contributions which alone swamped William Jennings Bryan's entire campaign war chests. Although there was no public disclosure at the time, some historians believe that corporate America ponied up more than $10 million to defeat William Jennings Bryan. And Hannah was, of course, the guy who famously said that Uh, There are only two important things in politics. One of them is money and the other I can't remember. Um, But this campaign and a series of scandals relating to uh, political spending by life insurance companies at the turn of the century um, prompted Congress to pass the Tillman Act, which banned campaign contributions by federally chartered corporations, a ban that's been in place since and has been steadily expanded uh, to include... Uh, campaign contributions and expenditures by all corporations, not just the federal ones. Nearly half the states directly ban corporate treasury contributions today, and many ban independent corporate expenditures. This has been upheld by the Supreme Court in a sequence of cases called the segregated fund cases, uh, where the court said it's totally fine to ban treasury contributions by both corporations and unions, so long as the corporations and unions can create political action committees which they do, that solicit voluntary contributions by their members. And the court said the people who participate in corporate or union life continue to have all the same rights that everybody else does. And all that's being banned here is taking money out of the treasury of those institutions to give directly to candidates. Now, the decision that's threatened today was um, Austin versus Michigan Chamber of Commerce, where the court upheld a ban on corporate treasury political expenditures, stating that this kind of spending threatens a corruption of democratic politics because such expenditures have little or no correlation to the public support for the corporation's political ideas. Um, That's the idea I want to pick up now in order to zero in on what's really at at stake in this case. Um, Given that all the precedent is on the side of Austin and McConnell, given that we have nothing on the record by which we can judge what the effects would be of unleashing essentially unlimited corporate expenditures and contributions in our elections, nothing on the record about how corporate shareholders or employees can even monitor, much less control, the new political spending and contributions by corporate officers, nothing on the record about whether the longstanding segregated fund requirements actually burden anybody's free speech in any way, we're forced to consider the matter as a question of pure constitutional and political logic. Are corporations to be treated under the First Amendment like democratic citizens with the right to spend and give freely in campaigns? Well, the first thing we notice is that all citizens, including corporate executives, already have equal rights to contribute and spend under the campaign finance laws. So citizens who happen to be a CEO or a CFO for a corporation already has the same right that bus drivers and teachers have to give $2,000 individual contributions to candidates for federal office, and I dare say in general a far greater capacity to exercise this right either directly to the candidate campaigns as individuals or through political action committees. Indeed, executives at corporations already enjoy far greater opportunities to multiply and aggregate their power through the PAC vehicle um, because business corporations have adopted PACs far more than any other group in society. But we can go further. Um, Individuals aligned with particular industries and corporations have robustly availed themselves of this option over the decades. For example, People associated with several prominent corporations that have managed to win hundreds of billions of dollars in Federal bailout money from Congress over the last year were shrewd enough to pump millions of dollars into Federal campaigns of candidates from both major parties to bundle their contributions together and to show that they are coming from this or that constituency group. According to the Center for Responsive Politics, executives, board members and employees of Goldman Sachs, for example, gave more than $3 million to Democratic and Republican candidates in the 2008 cycle with more than 90% of that money going to incumbents. They were able to produce this collective infusion of cash without ever having to resort to raids on the corporate treasury. And yet now we're told they need to be able to take money out of the corporate treasury too in order to enhance and enlarge their influence over Congress. Well, the second thing we notice is that under current law, All federal political money contributed to candidates or spent on their behalf comes directly from individuals who want to voluntarily associate themselves with the views of the candidate and promote those views. Or from PACs, which are essentially membership groups that receive and pool individual contributions. In other words, the First Amendment is currently protecting the right of people to freely associate and spend their money to advance their political views. But a a corporation is nothing like that. It's neither a person expressing himself or herself, nor a membership group collecting the voluntary contributions of many individuals who are expressing their political views. The money that corporations propose to spend comes from the corporate treasury, which is where the company's business income Is deposited. So if the McDonald's Corporation executive team, for example, chooses to spend treasury money on behalf of candidates they like, the money comes from the consumer spending of McDonald's customers, or the labor of McDonald's employees, or the investment of McDonald's shareholders, yet neither the customers, nor the employees, nor the shareholders, have anything to do with the decision of whether or how to spend corporate dollars in public elections. In the real world, they have no control over it at all. The one group with the say in the decision, corporate executives, is not spending any of its own money. They are free to do so on their own time by taking out their personal checkbooks. But they want to take money out of the treasury, the corporate treasury. But neither are these corporate executives even expressing their own political views. And this is a key point. Their fiduciary duty to the shareholders, the business judgment rule, and everything else in corporate law compels them to spend money in one way and one way only, to increase and maximize shareholder value. As Milton Friedman famously put it in Capitalism and Freedom, there is one and only one social responsibility of business to use its resources and engage in activities designed to increase its profits. Anything else is, in essence, a breach of fiduciary duty to the shareholders. In that sense, the law... Essentially requires that corporate expenditures reflect nobody's political views, but rather to advance an economic purpose, which is profit. To the extent that the money invested in politics is well spent from a corporate point of view, it will constitute inefficient and wasteful rent-seeking from a social standpoint, and to the extent it does not constitute successful rent-seeking behavior by the corporation, it breaches the fiduciary duty of the shareholders. But in any event, and this is the key point, there are no First Amendment values being served in terms of the rights of a speaker citizen. No citizen is speaking his or her mind. The state is compelling an artificial entity that it has organized for economic purposes and endowed with all kinds of economic advantages, to spend its money to further tailor the state's agenda to its economic goals. If the conservatives on the court get their way, the state will not only be permitting its own creature to consume it, as Justice White said, but commanding it to do so. For corporate executives will be constrained to spend on behalf of not the best candidates as they see them, but on behalf of those who will increase the profits of the company, all other public interests be damned. That will be the law. Corporations will remain a pure legal fiction as Chief Justice Marshall had it, but their political power will be as real as trillion-dollar bailouts for Wall Street, the implosion of worker pensions at Enron, the handsome contracts of Halliburton, or the criminal activities of Blackwater. Now, to see how far this path takes us from real First Amendment values relating to popular self-government and expression, consider this anomalous implication. Once upon a time, There was no difference between public and private corporations. All were just corporations. And the Dartmouth College case gave energy to the emerging distinction between the two. But municipal corporations today are still corporations. Baltimore and Chicago, uh, just as much as Exxon and Mobil. And I would pose this question to my friend Brad. Do cities and towns, as municipal corporations, have a First Amendment right to spend money in politics also? and to contribute to campaigns. Surely they have powerful self-interests in spending to promote presidential candidates, for example, who favor mass transit in a strong federal urban policy, or to influence state legislatures to equalize spending on public schools in urban and suburban uh, jurisdictions. Does that mean they have a constitutional right to publish books um, to promote particular candidates running for US Senate or president? If not, does that mean you actually want to ban books Do you actually want to censor books? Or are you saying it's just a confusion of categories to say that a corporation should be treated like a citizen? Now, I would say that a municipal corporation is not a citizen. It has no business telling citizens how to vote. And it's the exact same thing with with a private corporation. Um, Finally, the threat of corporate government should be perfectly obvious to true libertarians, especially those who have actually bothered to read uh, Adam Smith's huge Book, admittedly, but it, uh, nonetheless, it repays reading Wealth of Nations. Smith championed a truly free market and thought that individually, business corporations could participate beneficially in them. But once corporations join together, they become collusive against the public interest, whether evading the laws of the market, fixing prices, or converting their economic power into unjust political dominance. Smith recognized that what he called the principal architects of public policy. Which he defined in his day as the merchants and manufacturers made certain that their own interests quote had been most peculiarly attended to however grievous the effect on everyone else including not only the people of england but those who were subjected to what he called the savage injustice of the europeans specifically the inhabitants of conquered india we should heed adam smith's repeated warnings about the political power of corporations and resist the kind of judicial activism that would usher in a period of expanded corporate-dominated government in the United
0: States. Thanks. Thank you, Jamie. I have offered, uh, before we go to Q&A, I've offered both speakers about five minutes to reply. Right?
1: Well, Jamie gets so much in. Uh, and I'm going to need, I'm sorry, John. I'm going to go about 40 minutes here and reply. Uh, no. <laughs> he does get a lot. Um, let me suggest first that, uh, of course, corporations only have rights that go as far as their their members, as their people. Of course, they're not citizens in a sense. Lots of entities are not citizens. If the police came in here and broke up this meeting, they would be breaking up a meeting of the Cato Institute. Well, what is the Cato Institute? You can't feel it. It can't walk down the street. It doesn't vote. Does it have fourth, fifth, or sixth amendment rights? No, but the people do. We do, the people who are the Cato Institute. Corporations aren't created by the state. I mean, now and then the state does create a corporation, but it's a general rule they're not created by the state. They're created by people. And the state recognizes that as part of a legal regime, just as it recognizes contracts between people and property rules between people. It sets forth a legal regime that governs affairs. And some states have bad legal regimes, and some states have good, wise legal regimes, and that has much to do with how well-governed those states are, um... So of course corporations have rights only insofar as they consist of people, but of course corporations consist of people, and people have associational rights in the First Amendment to speak as well. Corporate speech has no value whatsoever. Well, of course it has value. I mean, look at the very case of Austin. This is the Michigan Chamber of Commerce, and they're running an ad saying, look, we've got a special election going on for the state Senate. The winning party is going to control the state Senate. If it's the Republicans, we'll get work comp reform, and businesses will flock to Michigan. And we know that years from now, Jennifer Granholm will never become governor, and it will be a great place in the auto industry. We'll never need a bailout. It didn't quite go that far. But that's what its position was. But if the Democrats win, on the other hand, the whole state will go down the toilet, right? And so you should vote for Richard Bansford, the Republican candidate. That's a very meaningful thing to say, and it's meaningful precisely because it comes from the Michigan Chamber of Commerce, not because it comes from from individual people who may or may not be members of the chamber, not because it comes from companies that are members, because it comes from that corporation. Just like it would be meaningful for a corporation to say, look... Our congressman voted against that stimulus bill. Now, we're going to go under without a stimulus uh, check. So uh, we need to elect that congressman. So we're going to run ads saying, folks, get out there and vote for congressman. Uh, Tell him to uh, vote for his challenger who's going to support the stimulus bill. That's a meaningful thing for the people there to hear. right? Now, it's not like this speech is these dollars spent on ads are then stuffed into a ballot box. You hear the speech and you decide who you want to vote for. And at that point, it begins to sound an awful lot like speech. And the fact that some of the people who are allowed to speak is not identical overlap to the people who have the right to vote is really pretty much irrelevant. Associations of people speak all the time as associations of people. And that's what they are. Let's look at the practical elements here, right? We focus a lot on the big corporations, right? All those corporations that support the Brennan Center like Bear Stearns and Enron and stuff, right? But let's talk about, you know, those corporations have lobbyists and they got tons of money. They've got a lot of influence, and they're going to have that influence. Who really is going to benefit from this? The fact is, you can't be holding everything back to some idea of corporations formed 200 years ago when it was a new thing and government didn't quite know what to do, and even democracy and the idea that the people created the government was a new idea corporations were beginning to sprout at the same time as this idea that, you know, uh, government controls everything. You can't do anything unless government permits it. And we kind of held that over in corporate life. But nowadays, everybody's incorporated. You can go out. You could be sitting here before I'm done talking. If you got your laptop, you can incorporate yourself, right? It's pretty easy to do. So get to it. Um, Everybody's a corporation. And this idea that corporations are special is just wrong. There are 7 million or more corporations in the United States, fewer than 2,500 of them have active PACs, because you can't form a PAC if you're not a big corporation. You can't afford the cost of administering it, and you don't have enough people to solicit to get money into it. So when the court says in these decisions you can ban corporate speech as long as there's a PAC option, maybe that's exactly right. And the reason Austin should be overturned is that for the overwhelming majority of corporate associations in the United States, there is no realistic Pack option. So I'm out of time, or I could go on and on. Thank you. An abrupt ending for you. Mm
2: -hmm. All right. Well, let's see. Um, If you go ahead and incorporate yourself while you're sitting here, it's hard for me to see why you should be able to contribute money both as an individual and then also as a corporation to people's campaigns or go out and spend it. And to the extent that you become hugely successful, as I hope you do, producing widgets or whatever it is the people engaging in business with you don't think that they're supporting your political agenda at the same time and in fact you know we've the supreme court has placed a lot of emphasis on what we call the external effects of corporate involvement in politics but the original laws that were passed around the time of the tillman act and many of the state laws in the early 1900s were based on the internal effects of corporate involvement in politics that is the impact on the shareholders because that was the period when there began to be a real divorce between corporate ownership and corporate control and the shareholders progressively lost power and so the executives got power over their resources and the idea was we've got to protect people's money from corporate executives taking advantage of it, spending other people's money on their political agenda. Now, not every state necessarily has to believe that's a problem, but a lot of states do believe that's a problem. Why would we constitutionalize the political rights of corporations to say that states cannot intervene to protect the interest of shareholders as well as the interests of all citizens and having an even playing field where every citizen can get involved? And I, if there are Barriers to people to corporations creating political action committees. I certainly haven't read about them, and there's certainly nothing on the record in this case to suggest that it's difficult for anybody to form a political action committee. On the contrary, there are thousands of political action committees out there that freely recruit people's voluntary contributions, which is what politics should be about. Now, um, Brad rightfully defends the associational rights of citizens to uh, to form corporations and partnerships and other kinds of groups. I absolutely favor that. And those groups um, have uh, the right to engage in speech, okay? Does that mean all of them have the right to participate in politics? Take, for example, universities, public universities or private universities. Those that maybe that are run by a municipal corporation. New York City has colleges under it. Or those are private universities like mine, American University. Now. Do we see it as consistent with our image of free speech and academic free speech that universities can take all of the money that's being paid to them through the tuition of students and put it into political campaigns, even if it's well spent to narrowly advance the selfish interests of universities? Or do we say, no, there are different kinds of associations in society and politics should be reserved for citizens and the membership groups that they form? And a corporation, no matter how you want to dress it up, is not a membership organization. Uh, People don't join a corporation. Now, if there are people who join a corporation to participate in politics, the Supreme Court's already taken care of that in the Massachusetts Citizens for Life case, saying if there is a not-for-profit ideological corporation, then it's exempted from 441B and the laws that otherwise prohibit it. But if it's a corporation that's set up for the vast majority of purposes that corporations are set up for, for economic purposes. It simply doesn't belong in politics. And just like our fan, our founders uh, intended a wall of separation between church and state, we have evolved in our democracy a wall of separation between corporate money and public elections, which this case threatens to explode all of a sudden. And many of our constitutional amendments actually relate to this point. For example, and it's It it might not be obvious on the face of it, but if you look at the 17th Amendment, which passed in 1913, which shifted the mode of election of US senators from the state legislatures to the people, The whole legislative history reveals that it was about the power of private corporations to go in and bribe legislatures to create so-called corporation senators who would go to Washington to serve particular corporations. So that in itself also further elaborates the theme of trying to build a public politics that's not dependent on private corporate money.
0: thanks first to the speakers for uh, staying well within their time. Now we go to the question and answer period. I'm looking very much forward to this, but please, several things. One, please wait until the microphone arrives so everyone can hear you. Please identify yourself and any institutional affiliation you might have. And if you want to direct to one or the other of the speakers today, please do so. But most of all, Cato is like Jeopardy. Make sure your answer is in the form of a question, all right, for somebody up here. And so everyone will get a chance to talk. Uh, The gentleman right on the aisle there. Uh, Question for uh, Senator Raskin. In view of your view of the ethereal nature of a corporation, do you think that New York Times against Sullivan was improperly decided? I believe that the First Amendment gives equal, indeed, maybe even primary, protection to speech over a press. So was that wrongly decided, since it gives, since it uh, recognizes a constitutional right in the corporation?
2: You can speak. Right. I no, I think it was absolutely rightly decided, and it is a, a critical First Amendment landmark. And I hope that nothing I've said is in any way in conflict with that. Um, you know, th- there was a there was a claim that was rightfully dismissed by the Supreme Court that the New York Times did not enjoy First Amendment protection because it sold its newspapers or speech. Well, that of course would obviate any First Amendment protection for any bookseller or magazine seller or newspaper seller or what have you. I mean, and remember, so the the campaign finance laws have never been used against publication of a book, to my knowledge, um, and um, you know, so it, it's kind of a red herring in this whole discussion. The, the key question that we've got to focus on as a society and as a court is should we allow corporate managers to take money out of corporate treasuries to spend on political campaigns and to contribute to candidates? That's the question. Or if they feel strongly about something, can they spend their own money to do it and can the board spend their own money to do it and employees and so on? I mean, that to me is the question posed by these
3: cases.
0: Uh, gentleman down front. Uh, wait, please wait for the mic like, so everyone can hear you.
3: Burt Gall with the Institute for Justice. Um, quick question. If the government's position prevails, which is that Hillary the movie can be banned as a constitutional matter because Hillary Clinton's you know, fitness for office is called you know, into question, then why is a constitutional matter can't books also be banned? I mean, here's some quotes from some recent political literature. Dude, where's my country by Michael Moore? There is probably no greater imperative than facing the nation than the defeat of George W. Bush in the 2004 election. Bush must go, Bill Press. If you need any ammunition for voting against George Bush, here they are. The top 10 reasons why George Bush must be denied a second term. Or my dad, John McCain by Megan McCain. There are a few great th- there are a few things you need to know about my dad, and one of them is that he would make a great president. I could go on, but all of these books were published by corporations using corporate money, and they certainly uh, engage in advocacy, probably a lot of it expressed advocacy.
2: Yeah. Um so let's see uh, but I agree that Citizens United should win this case, and there are several reasons and several ways it could win this case that stop well short of uh, reversing a century of campaign finance law in in the uh, United States. One is simply to say that the, they put out, this was an on-demand satellite transmission, so people have to go and actually pay to see the movie, right? Um, so that's very different from people running TV commercials You know, corporations running TV commercials mentioning candidates' names or express advocacy 30 days within an election. So on that basis alone, Citizens United should win the case. Um, It's also unclear to me, like an example you gave of Michael Moore, that that would constitute express advocacy or that the anti-Hillary movie constitutes express advocacy. I mean, to criticize someone, to take on their politics, is not necessarily the same thing is to be advocating the victory or defeat of a candidate in the terms of McCain-Feingold. So I would think that they could win on, on that basis as well. And it's sort of like the question about the New York Times. I mean, the New York Times has untrammeled First Amendment rights as a press entity under the press clause, it seems to me. But that doesn't mean it has the right to reach into the money that it's earned as a newspaper and to give a million dollars to Mayor Bloomberg's campaign as a corporation. So that's the point that I'm trying to focus on.
1: Just as as a brief point about kind of real politic, I think one of the things that that happens here is the appetite for, for campaign finance regulation is insatiable. I mean, I, would, I like it when Jamie says, hey, you know, uh, no, it's not uh, express advocacy. But that's not the position that others have taken. Indeed, the whole McCain-Feingold bill and the case upholding it, McConnell v. FEC, were based on they idea that, well, there's no functional difference between express advocacy and these things that talk about their fitness, and we need to keep reaching out further and further. And, of course, what ultimately happens is as you keep constraining the, the avenues by which people can speak, you run the the sort of risk of the... The twang back so leaving aside what i think would be the ideal world or anything i mean one of the issues here is that the insatiable appetite for more regulation may be causing the backlash and it's people who are allies of jamie's not necessarily himself who in, in a sense are, are creating their own catastrophe because they do keep trying to cut into people's rights to engage in in speech to the point where again the court is suddenly sitting there saying wait a minute you mean you can ban books? And the government's saying, yes, we can. And I think the reason we haven't seen any, many efforts to ban books is people haven't written many books yet. But if the court says, yeah, you can ban Hillary the movie, but we don't think you can ban books, you know, we'll start seeing more and more books get published until people start complaining that we need to ban the books. It's, that's, the, that's the nature of the problem.
0: Uh, gentleman second from the top,
4: Jim Bopp. Thank you. The, uh, for uh, Jamie, the, the three fallacies I see in your argument uh, are, first, uh, your argument would suggest that the First Amendment confers rights on certain entities. In other words, you keep talking about citizens should have rights. But the First Amendment isn't written that way. It doesn't say, Congress shall make no law abridging the right of citizens to speak. It says, Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. So that whoever can speak, illegal aliens, uh, children, uh, whoever can speak, uh, artificial uh, uh, entities, partnerships, whatever, uh, they have they've engaged in activity that's encompassed within the protection of the First Amendment. And it has absolutely nothing to do with, with the nature of the entity. The second fallacy is, is your, your claim certainhood. That, if Austin was overturned, that the uh, we would have massive corporate f- spending that w- that would uh, that would distort the political process while at the same time we have over twenty states for over two hundred years have allowed that very type of spending, and there is absolutely no evidence that uh that is the result, and the third fallacy is the idea that there is something untoward about people speaking in the political marketplace after having raised their funds in the economic marketplace. But after all, everyone raises their money in the economic marketplace. People work for Ford. Uh, Bill Gates gets p- uh, paid uh, by uh, by Microsoft. Uh, there's no a, a tree out there. Uh, I suppose as a state senator, you could say, your salary... Uh, comes from your prowess in the political marketplace, but if that 's what we 're ending up with in terms of people that can spend their own resources uh, then there 's a very few people that would be able to participate in politics <clears throat>
2: um, Thank you for that tripartite dis- dissection of my uh, <laughs> of my talk. Um, The the key point is the first one. Let me start with that, where you say that the the First Amendment correctly does not refer to the freedom of speech of citizens, but just says that Congress shall make no law respecting uh, uh, establishment of religion or abridgment of the freedom of speech. Okay. Um, And then you say, so therefore it applies generally to illegal aliens and partnerships. But I think that you've just debunked your argument. Does that mean that illegal aliens have a constitutional right under our First Amendment to give money in our campaigns? Do partnerships have a constitutional right to give money to candidates? And are there any limits to the number of partnerships you can create? In other words, that seems to me to cause the whole system to unravel. I mean, and that might be ultimately the objective here. But, you know, in other words, if I can create as many partnerships as I want, which I can certainly as a First Amendment right – Then I can create 500 partnerships, and then I can give as much money as I want to any candidate that I want. And then, you know, we've completely erased the distinction between contributions and expenditures. Illegal aliens is a great example. I mean, the the logic of my argument, which I totally embrace, is that our politics is for our citizens. And if a state wants to say illegal aliens can give money, as you're suggesting, it can, but I wouldn't favor that in my state. I think my state should have the right to say our politics is for the citizens of our state. So, so, you know, I mean, I appreciate the, the candor of your argument that you're willing to go out to illegal aliens and partnerships, but I would not, and for the same reason I don't go to corporations. I think it's human beings that vote. It's human beings that participate. It's human beings that enjoy the First Amendment rights. All right, secondly, you say that we have no evidence that massive corporate spending will actually distort or invert our politics. I, my argument actually doesn't depend on showing that anyway. I don't think corporations have First Amendment rights. I mean, whatever the impact might be, it might be fantastic, it might be pernicious, it might be great, it might be evil. I just don't, just like, I don't think illegal aliens have First Amendment rights to give money in our politics. I just don't think they belong. I think it's a category error. I think it's a, that is a conceptual fallacy. But um, if, if I take the bait and I say there's been no, evi- you say there's been no evidence, half the states allow corporations to do it. Well, we have no evidence at all because this was never argued below, So we don't know. I would like to see an empirical study of what the impact has been in the states that allow corporate spending versus those which haven't. But remember, this was a a rabbit pulled out of a hat at the Supreme Court level, but we have no evidence at all to know one way or the other. And I would say that the burden of proof should be the other way, to show that in the states that don't allow it, somehow people's freedom of speech has been stifled. I mean, there are lots of states which don't allow corporate spending or contributions, and The people who identify with corporations can give all the money they want. They can spend all of their own money. They just can't spend other people's money. Finally, um, you say everyone gets their money from economics and then converts it to politics, which is true, again, as citizens. I think it's a very different thing if you say, well, I think universities should be able to spend their money in politics. I think the city of Washington, D.C. should be able to spend its money in politics. Nobody has been able to explain to me why this argument about corporations having First Amendment political rights shouldn't carry over to municipal corporations. Mm
1: I I, I do want to chime in with a couple points on that. One thing I want to make is the point, first I want to do a couple points of law. One thing to be clear is this case is not about allowing corporations to contribute directly to candidates. That is a different issue and the Supreme Court has a different framework in which they analyze that and they've given the legislator much more ability to limit campaign contributions than campaign expenditures. Uh, Now it may be that a lot of people who would favor uh, overruling Austin would also favor allowing corporations to make a uh, contributions, but that's not an issue in this case. Similarly, uh, if you formed 500 partnerships or 500 corporations, assuming one uh, uh, stands by the constitutionality of limitations on contributions, which are not at issue in this case, then you can't form 500 cro- uh, corporations to give money, uh, even if a corporation has uh, a limit on how much that can give but has a limit on it. Uh, the laws always treat closely or, uh, corporations or partnerships under the same control as a single entity for those purposes. So we don't want to go off into areas where this case doesn't go. We don't want a little bit of academic activism here from the from the panel. Um, I do want to raise uh, another point, which uh, I, I, I want to address the municipalities. Thing. I mean, municipalities, I think, do have a right to speak as corporations. They don't have a right to speak because they're the government, and that's why we limit them. And it fundamentally alters the relationship between the people and their government to say the government can spend, the, can extract by force people's tax dollars than spend that money to perpetuate itself in office in the course of a political campaign. I, I just don't think that that's a, a proper use. And and so that's the reason why uh, corporations don't speak. Colleges, I think, sh- can, should be able to. One of the things that's been going on here is this notion, this idea that executives are just out there spending money like crazy, and it may or may not have anything to do with the corporation. But hey, you know, what if the uh, congressman goes out there and he says, I think we ought to regulate uh, these corporations. The corporation, that is the people who are shareholders in the corporation, don't have a right to fight back, to try to persuade people not to do that. Of course they should have that right. And again, the idea that the PAC option is there, first, again, it's not realistic for most corporations uh, due to the nature of the PAC rules. That's why the vast majority of PAC corporations don't have PACs. But secondly, if they don't have a PAC, you don't have time to create one and get into the game if it comes out late in the day. A candidate says, well, if I'm elected, here's what we're going to do to this corporation because, you know, we all hate big insurance companies or big pharmaceutical companies or big oil companies or whatever it is. Nobody ever has, hates little companies, but so they're always called big. The big companies, how, do, No matter how big or small they are, yeah. Um, so, you know, those, those things are there. And I do want to, uh, and I think it's worth noting, you know, in other words, what about the rights of shareholders when their economic rights are directly under attack? We used to have a Supreme Court that would strike down lots of economic regulations. And in the case, Caroline Products Corporation, that those of you who went to law school know, the court said, you know, we're going to kind of take a hands-off approach to economic regulation. You have to defend your economic liberties and freedoms in the political marketplace. And we're only going to apply real scrutiny to what the legislature does when they're interfering in the political marketplace, right? You can't have... The promise of Caroline products then is, you know, we're going to be, give Congress a lot more leeway to regulate economics, but people have a right to participate in the political market. You can't then turn around and say, but some people, those of you who have your economic interest in the form of corporations, don't get to participate in the political market. It turns our entire foundation of modern constitutional jurisprudence, which is based on this Caroline products, upside down. For those of you who aren't lawyers, I, I apologize. I'm not going to go into Caroline products more than that. But uh, it, you, you can't sit there and say, you defend your economic rights in the political marketplace and then say, ah, but you guys lose your political rights too.
0: Gentleman here.
5: Hi, I'm Jed Brinton, and I I just wanted to, I guess it seems like the key issue here is this question of, you know, corporations made up of, of as a people um, and these people as individuals, and I, I like the example of me being able to incorporate here. So if I were to incorporate, you know, using my laptop right now, then I guess the idea, and I guess this question is mostly directed Professor Raskin, is that from then on, that slice of my life, the slice that I do under that corporation it can be. My my political speech in that arena can be limited. Um, I I don't have First Amendment rights as the CEO of that corporation. uh, And so the money I raise in that area and whatever benefits I accrue from what the government's given me as a corporation, I can still speak, you know, me qua me, but I can't do it as, you know, as the CEO of my corporation. Um, And I'm wondering, it seems if we compare that to other situations, I, I don't know why that's such a unique thing. And so one that comes to mind would be, uh, what if I decide to join a professional sports team um, in the city, and it's you know a publicly funded stadium that we use, and I become famous and rich through that? Um, you know, but it seems like I still, you know, sports star. I would still have the power to speak politically under the First Amendment. It seems like protected. Um, or if I run for office, let's say I become a state senator and thereby benefit and you know become famous. Uh, it seems like that slice of my life, I still have First Amendment political speech rights that are protected. So why is it that? Why? Why is it that, or, or, or perhaps I guess the question is, should I be similarly limited in using the resources that I accumulate in those slices of my life to speak politically, like you're saying I should be under my corporate?
2: Yeah, place? I mean, I, I want to handle with some care exactly your hypothetical, which I take seriously. I mean, if, for example, as a state senator, I'm not allowed to spend any of my money on campaign exp- on campaign costs, right? I'm not allowed to spend the public's money campaigning. Um, it strikes me that it's the same thing with a municipal corporation. Uh, a municipal corporation cannot spend money telling people how to vote. There was a case uh, like this called the City of Boston versus Anderson, where the City of Boston was trying to favor a statewide constitutional referendum to introduce progressive taxation to Massachusetts, which, believe it or not, didn't have it uh, at the time. And um, so Boston, the city wanted to say, tell people across the state, vote for this, because it's something we need that will. Um, you know, benefit the people of Massachusetts. And the the um, attorney general said they can't do it. They went to court to say we have a First Amendment right to do it. And the court said you don't have a First Amendment right to do it because the state has an interest in stopping you from it because there's an interest for, of the dissenting citizens the dissenting shareholders, in essence, of the city of Boston. Well, of course, it's the exact same thing with corporations. Most corporations are not one person, like what you're suggesting. Um, And so you immediately have other people's money involved. And why doesn't a state have at least the opportunity, at least the option to say, you know what, we're going to protect the rights of the dissenting shareholders by saying corporations, that the corporate executives can speak all that they want and spend all of their own money that they want, but they can't dip into the corporate treasury to spend other people's money advancing their political agenda.
1: Um, One thing that's that's, uh, worth uh, going back to, since we talked just about corporations again and and the the use of speech, and I just want to squeeze it in, is the question Jamie raised in response to the last question, too, about who has the burden of proof here. And he said, well, you, you should have the burden of proof to show that your speech is stifled. If by that he means a sort of a standing jurisprudential matter, do you have standing? Have you shown that you're suffering an injury? I think that's met pretty easily. I mean, Citizens United, you know, can't speak. corporation, a group of associate people, can't speak. They're limited in their ability to do that. So if we mean it in the broader sense that is there a government-compelling interest that overcomes the speech rights to enable it to regulate that speech, I think that burden of proof has to go exactly the other way around, that the entire idea of the Constitution is that the government would have uh, quite a substantial burden to show that it needed, in fact, to regulate that speech, that it was really true that it was going to be consumed by its own creation, if you want to use that, that phrase. So I think the burden of proof in that sense, you know, has to go to those who would regulate speech. I, I'm not quite sure what else. It may not, you don't have to be an absolutist on the First Amendment, but I'm not quite sure what else Congress shall make no law means if it doesn't mean that those who would make laws don't at least have a burden of proof that it's really important to do so.
0: Ashley March in the <clears throat> back there.
1: Professor Raskin, it seems as though your argument is that the state has a compelling interest to protect dissident uh, voters, dissident members of, of the corporation or any other kind of organization, um, and this use of other people's money. Would you then extend that to a corporation's charitable contributions? And if not, why not?
2: Sure. Sure. Well, I mean, of course, that's totally a matter of state law. There was a very respectable argument made when this first emerged that corporations should not be involved in charities at all, both because uh, a lot of the shareholders might not agree with the particular direction of the expenditures, but also that corporations should not be determining patterns of social giving. If there are social needs, they should be taken care of. Publicly as common goods rather than haphazardly catch as catch can by virtue of some corporation saying, I like the Kennedy Center or I like the Cato Institute or whatever. So, um, the, absolutely, I think that that is a matter of state law and it properly should be. Um, and, it's up, and if a state you know, wanted to regulate that in some way, for example, it has to when it defines what is charitable and what's not, I think that that's totally within the power of the state to determine.
0: Uh, I just should tell you I'm laughing because uh, Ashley does foundation fundraising here. So when Jamie's king, Ashley has to find other job. <laughs> the gentleman in front here.
3: Thank you. Um, Robert Guest from The Economist magazine. I have maybe a rather difficult question for both of, of, of you. Um, what do you think the Supreme Court's going to decide? And
2: Brad knows them better than I
1: do so I, 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 you know I, I don't like all the tea reading I never think he gets too much but I guess I would say I would guess that there are going to be a, it's going to be a five to four decision to overturn Austin um, I think that you will get If I were to give my full prediction, it would be Breyer will concur in the judgment. That is, he thinks Citizens United should get off, but he'll dissent from all the opinion and the overturning of Austin and everything else. Uh, He he thinks Austin, he'll come up with an opinion kind of like uh, Jamie has suggested, that you can do something else, and that you'll get a dissent written by uh, Stevens and joined by uh, Ginsburg, and Sotomayor will be in one of those latter two camps. And if I were to predict, you know, because what the heck, I would say that, that Kennedy will probably write that five to four opinion.
2: Well, <clears throat> um, this may be wishful thinking on my part, uh, but Chief Justice Roberts did walk up to the brink on the Voting Rights Act case and then come back from it, and you know found um, uh, you know a less sweeping way to get to where he was going. And I think that this case, given how huge the stakes are for democracy, um, I think that that Roberts will not ultimately want to use this case to do it. Certainly, Citizens United wins on any number of grounds, but um, there just is no factual record on this case to justify um, the sweeping overruling of a, a wall of precedent that goes back decades.
1: I, I'd agree that that's a likely outcome. I don't think, by the way, the wall of precedence, since, since the senator has mentioned it three times, I'm, I don't think the wall of precedents all that great. There's really not really any judicial precedence for this until you get up into, uh, uh, well, really the 1980s before the court squarely addresses this idea and decides the issue, and it's only really Austin. That's why we're only talking about overturning Austin that says that you can totally ban corporate contributions. Before then, the court kind of dodged the issue repeatedly and, and kind of hemmed and hawed around it and never really fought it. And again, you know, there were so many loopholes in the law it was so easy to circumvent, if you will, that it was never really much of an issue. And then in 1978, in a case not involving candidate races, but ballot races so there is a distinction that can be made the court said very clearly that corporations had a right to spend their money uh for people to hear in a ballot race and so again it's not really to the 1980s or one might even say 1990 with uh austin that one really gets the court squarely facing this issue
0: I hope you agree with me that we have had a very fine panel today, uh, as is so often the case, I think, on these okay. issues. Both of our uh, guests today have, I think, laid out the different perspectives on this in a way that can help us all think uh, about these issues. Remember, tomorrow is the reargument. argument. Uh, pay attention, and we should have, I think, by the end of the year probably, a, a decision. Thank you for coming, and please let's go have lunch.
4: Well okay. Very well.